0: This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. XCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers and that means you, my friend. This cloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code beta, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwallcutters.com forward slash energy This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on Walkheaders? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Today, we do not have a startup. I think Deloitte is much larger than that at this point. I think everybody knows you guys. Amy, you have the the title of the world's longest title, I think. Let me, let me go <laughs> through it. Let me see if that. I nail it. So you're the um, you're the Vice Chair, U.S. Energy and Chemicals Leader, and the Houston Managing Partner for Deloitte. Is that correct?
1: That is correct, Jake.
0: All right, so we we, we nailed that. We got that out of the way. That was one thing. I, don't, I didn't want to butcher that, right? <laughs> So we met. Uh, I, I you guys invited me to come to a tour at your greenhouse, probably about a year ago. I yep. think um, what a cool facility. It's my understanding that that's what you use for for clients or maybe even potential new clients to kind of walk them through. It's a very like just cool immersive experience. What was like what was the what was the the genesis of of that?
1: Sure. Well, so that this, this new generation greenhouse power we could call it powered by energy and industrial so it has a real industry bent to it if you will. But it's it's you know available for all companies and industries and we and we, we do use that. We have um, over 40 greenhouses around the world. Wow. 14 in the US. And what we it's all based on the psychology of learning. And that when you when you take humans out of their normal element, especially now away from Zoom and Teams or or you know vir- virtual uh, work and thinking, when you put them together to solve a common problem and give them an interactive type experience, which you when you bring in all your senses, and we 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 you know we have you know as you know when you went through the tour, there's a Manifesto breakthrough in terms of what does it take to help human beings change to to coalesce around you know whatever their new objective or mm-hmm. to, you know problem they're trying to solve is. And it, it, you know it may sound far-fetched, but what I've witnessed happening in those experiences is is very reward is very rewarding for us to help people solve problems, to move to the next chapter. And as you and I are talking about today, lot, lots lots of new chapters unfolding around the world and human beings need those opportunities to come together to experience, the art of the possible. the um, and, and as you saw, we we um, you know have different learning uh, spaces, if you will, there, where you can actually, you know uh, you know our immersive dome where you can actually experience um, you know n- new cases, new opportunities. Um, demonstration spaces where you can, you know, check out demos. Like as you saw, you know, our our you know kind of t- films around drone, uh, mm-hmm. you know, capabilities, virtual, VR, decarbonization tools, cybersecurity tools. So all you know, all things to th- to help our clients think around possible solutions and alternatives they might not have thought about.
0: I love it. So I definitely want to dive into your backstory. We were just talking about how you're you're from Columbus. I was Correct. just there earlier this week. Um, before we do that, what is like where do you like where do you spend your time? Obviously, you've got a lot of responsibilities. You know, you've got the entire Houston office. You've got this whole energy division. Like, what do you really like? What do you spend your time on? Sure.
1: Well, the the, the industry role is for the U.S., so obviously, okay. you know, so I'm, it's not a global role. But nonetheless, I do travel quite a bit. And what's exciting to me, especially since there's just you know, even during the pandemic, there was a real desire by senior executives to meet per in person mm-hmm. to talk about the problems that challenge us. And, and as you know, the whole the evolution of the industry it, is underway. We power the world. And so there could not be a more critical time for us to be discussing what, you know, what, you know, what are the obstacles, what are the roadblocks that need to happen for the industry to help the world progress. So I, I, I love meeting with clients. I love you know, having to, uh, getting to help facilitate experiences in, in our innovation center. And uh, that's my favorite, building our teams. I spent a lot of time working on our internal team development. And, uh, you know, it, we're growing quite a bit. And, in, 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 you know, it's not just, you know, energy and chemicals is a very broad topic, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, for instance, it's not chemicals anymore. It's chemicals and advanced materials. You know, it's not just energy. It's oil, gas, mining, packaging, metals. All huge uh, segments with huge opportunities and challenges. So, I would I my being able to bring the best of Deloitte from all the you know different expertise, different service lines. Um, you know, for those of your viewers who don't know what a, I heard us called Deloitte the, Delati the other day. So <laughs> what we do is you know we're, people don't realize we're an over sixty billion dollar global organization, and with you know you. Know, Four key businesses in the United States: you know, audit and assurance, tax, consulting and financial and risk advisory. And under all those things is this underlying theme of helping companies. Now, and you know you, may, you, you mentioned at the beginning that, the, uh, that this wasn't a startup, but what we love is that really, we start up a lot of different services mm-hmm. to help companies. So we're very reactive to whatever might be going on, like, for instance, the Inter- Inflation Reduction Act, right? You know, very quickly, we worked to figure out what that meant and what opportunities it presented for our clients, helping them relook at their models, that things that weren't, you know, cost beneficial or even feasible just a few years ago. Now, they're taking second and third looks. So to me, that's exciting, helping bring progress.
0: I'm, I'm so excited to dive into just all the things that you're seeing. I mean, I think you, especially meeting with clients and you're you're constantly on the road, you're talking to a lot of people. So I'm excited to dive into... The challenges that you, your clients uh, have, and what you're seeing in the space, and what people are optimistic about. First, let's dive into how do we get here. Like, what, what's your backstory?
1: Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'm I'm one of those Texans who got here as soon as I could. I, I I'm from a large family of eight children. I'm number wow. seven. I get asked that a lot. Not sure what what, what that means, but <laughs> but uh, I'm very blessed that I, I, w- I was born on a farm just north of Columbus, Ohio. And uh, you know had a, had a great upbringing in terms of you know f- you know faith, family, friends, and, and inc- an incredible work ethic that we all had to work. And and I developed very early on uh, a, a, wor- a bookworm mentality because I I you know we all had chores, all had you know things we needed to do, but I decided really early on that I was not a fan of labor manual manual labor, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> Sorry, and I I wanted to get the best education I could get, and my my. Parents enabled that, and we really, you know, had a love of reading and love of education and doing, being the best. No matter what you're going to do in life, doing your best every day was just a constant. And so I, I grew up wanting to travel the world, and I went to Ohio State. I was, I mentioned that I that I've been a runner since a young age, running on the Ohio track club, and then through high school and college, and had the uh, pleasure of getting to run cross country and track at Ohio State, and all those experiences. Uh, Made me tougher, made me ready to to get out in the world. And at the moment I was graduating, at that moment in the early '80s, it was booming in Texas and uh, busting, if you will, you know, not not a great economy in the Midwest. And so there was a real drive to bring um, CPA eligible candidates to Texas. And I thought, sure, I'll try. I thought I would, you know, be going to Chicago, the next largest city, but ended up in Texas and fell in love. And, uh, you know, have had – it was very interesting, Jake, that I interned in a boom, right? And it was go, 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 and I just was enthralled with – at that moment, I I was uh, working with a lot of, um, you know, smaller companies – uh founder run you know you know wildcatters i mean in in a lot of attendant service or like oil field service barge operators um mm-hmm. consumer retail I was really really it was blessed that I got to experience a lot of things mostly with on the smaller side, and I learned so much from that and that mentality of um survival. Cause then when I returned after I graduated full time it busted huge bust, yep. and seen so many of those um you know. You know, those amazing people struggle and survive was again a huge learning opportunity for me. And so I think I've been through, I think maybe five or six cycles now (laughs) since then. And I remain excited by this frontier, this industry, you know, that frontier mentality for, you know, and as you know, Houston is one of the most diverse cities. It is the most diverse city in the US, where, you know, one out of every four of our citizens was not born here. And so for me, that continuing. Um, excitement around seeing people come here from all over the world and be successful and with this you know the startups mm-hmm. you're working with, you know there are lots of people who are hungry and excited to take that engineering expertise that biotech expertise whatever it is and build something bigger that that I find that really exciting and I think um, being here in Houston in particular is like the nexus of that. And I think I'm hoping we'll not only continue to be the energy capital of the world, but the the uh, the evolution, the energy evolution center.
0: I think I think 100%. I think that what you mentioned is I don't think people realize how diverse Houston is unless you live here. Right? right. I don't think that we get a lot of respect for that until people actually come here. And, and then also the food too. We have the best food in the entire world, which is amazing when you live here, but then you travel and it's like everything else just leave you wanting more. You're like, oh, I, could, I get better food at home.
1: Yeah, Well, the fusion, right? I yeah. mean- who would have guessed that, that combining Vietnamese cuisine with, with Cajun would be this delicious thing that my wow. family loves, which is, you know, Cajun crawfish. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Vietnamese ca- Cajun crawfish. So yeah. good. So good. Outstanding.
0: So how long, how long have you been at Deloitte?
1: 21 years.
0: Okay. So you so you didn't start your career or where were you at before that? So
1: I started as an auditor okay. at Arthur Anderson. Okay. I became a partner and um had the opportunity to go to Austin in okay. the height of the dot com era. Okay. And um to reopen the office there, became the managing partner there, and in that moment got to work with lots of startups. Lots of startups. Um and you know, I remember being told several times that like I just didn't get it. Cause I would ask, well, you know, entrepreneurs would come in and say, You know we need three years of financials because we're going to go public and in six months we'll do this and that and i would say well how are you going to make money and they're like amy you just don't get it it's all about eyeballs and clicks and don't you know most of those companies don't exist anymore but i learned a lot in that moment but most importantly what i learned is that when Anderson went out of business in 2002 um our clients trusted me and my team and and i will always be grateful that they had trust and faith in us to continue serving them, And in that moment, I was able to take our entire practice over to deloitte and have um, been thrilled to be here ever since.
0: It's been so great. Did, so did you start off on like the financial side of Deloitte, or did you go straight into consulting?
1: No, I started off on the on the financial side, okay. and it, but it quickly became apparent that I'd been working with a lot of large companies. Mm-hmm. and and that's what I love to do in terms of helping companies. Grow and you know as they get more sophisticated, helping them with really sophisticated transformation journeys, and and um, and so you might say, well, how did you end up as an you know energy and chemical industry leader? I, I when I think that ba- that time that I spent in quote unquote high tech uh, industry actually was really great for me in terms of seeing how really technology per- permeates everything, and honestly, most technology companies they're manufacturers and marketers. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the semiconductor companies are manufacturers. And so that common under, like if you cut through, you know, refiners are manufacturers, there's a lot of commonality. And do you need deep expertise? Absolutely. And frankly, you know, I'm so blessed that we have so many amazing specialists and very deep pockets of expertise at Deloitte that I get to bring those to the table. While kind of bringing this kind of oversight. I like to think I bring a macro over, you know, oversight mm-hmm. to our clients by being able to bring the very best from around the world, and I love that too. That, that this career has enabled me to travel and experience lots of different environments and backgrounds, and I think that helps me bring more rich um, examples to our clients.
0: So, on the consulting side, for those for those who don't understand, uh, you can go back to your comment of a Deloitte or whatever whatever they called it. <laughs> what are the what are the things that, that the companies come to you guys for what are you, what are you guys known for
1: oh my it're no I mean it depends it depends what your needs are right if if you're as I mentioned earlier if, if you're looking at doing you know thinking about a transaction or investment um, you know you you might come to us to do important due diligence work valuation tax modeling um, you know technology modeling all kinds you know to see you know to help you assess the good bad and Unknowns of a potential opportunity. Um, you know, if you're a, a company that's thinking about going public, you might need help to become IPO ready, right? Which are, are in our audit insurance world, we we help do that. If you're uh, if you need if you're talking about a company wide transformation, you want someone who can bring all the aspects that you need to think about to that. So, uh, for instance, you need to talk of, think about controls and risks and cyber considerations. You need to talk about the interaction, the interface. You think about your supply chain, your platforms, you know, all, the, there's so many things, Jake, that come in that need to come into play
0: mm-hmm. to,
1: to make an overall project successful.
0: So where, or I guess, what are you, what are you seeing today? Like, what are the trends? Let's, let's talk about the challenges. Like sure, this. sure. What are, what are the challenges that you're seeing with, with most of the clients that you're working with? Oh, wow. So what's top of mind?
1: Well, you know, obviously it changes depending in the organization, but I I can't remember a conversation in the last month in the boardroom or with senior clients that didn't include AI. Okay. People are talking about AI. People are talking about uh, geopolitics and the impact on pricing and supply chain.
0: Mm. Mm. So we're talking about more about this, the, I guess the supply chain for, uh, for GPUs, say like the NVIDIA. Manufacturers in order to be able to meet the demand for AI.
1: Well, yes, on the AI side, that's correct. But I, I meant bro- even broader than that, just in terms uh, of energy the, supply chain. En- yeah, energy okay. supply chain, energy security, energy stability, pricing. Mm. Um, you know, what's the impact of rising prices, in particular? What's the impact of lower than expected demand and recovery in China?
0: Mm. So, is it is a conversation centered around using AI to answer those questions, or how AI will okay. impact those things?
1: Okay. Well, so. I, so when I said AI was top of mind, then I, then I skipped to the, the <laughs> economics. So AI, so, oh gosh, a- AI is a fascinating topic. And I'll, I'll, I wanna just preface my remarks about that by saying it's a huge mistake to think about it as a project, mm. that it is a transformative way that we're going to, that's going to change the it world in terms of step how we work. Change. It is, it is, is a like step
0: change. This is like going from not having the internet to having the internet. And like, this isn't just another
1: absolutely another
0: tool that you kind of layer in. I mean, this is extremely game changing. I mean, this is arguably my favorite topic to talk about these well, days. Well, good. Because I'm, I,
1: yes, I brought some info to talk to you about
0: that. I'm such a nerd on AI. We all use it. Everybody here has uh, multiple AI tools that they use. It's been completely transformative for us in terms of just being able to extract things out of our heads and, and to be able to articulate them better, particularly a lot of creative work. Uh, but we also use it for you know high-powered data analysis and uh, a bunch of other things. But it's been it's been cool to see. You know, when I'm not sitting here podcasting, you know, I spend a lot of my time talking to um, executives of various oil and gas companies, and I ask the same question, particularly over the last call it six months, and this has been the same answer. Everybody's thinking about AI. Absolutely. You know?
1: Well, so I heard it, our, uh, our global AI leader was in town last week visiting with some of our clients, and he used an analogy that has stuck with me all week. And that's the way to think about the discontinuity of this is if you think back, the last time, the last time this happened was the invention of the steam engine. Until that moment in history, it, only human beings and plow animals could really pr- pr- produce,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, energy or create uh, products, okay? That's the, the steam engine sparked the industrial revolution. And what's interesting is he said, if, if you could Google what was the media like around that, the time of that invention, it would tell you that for 30 years, it was doomsday that people said, this is gonna replace the peasants in the field and the take, away, <laughs> take, away, take away their, economic, their jobs, their yeah. economic opportunity. And it didn't do any of that. It, it improved the world's living conditions. And that's the way we should think about this in terms of this is, this is for the first time, we can work with a, um, whatever you wanna call it, software or machines that can think like humans and faster and so we need to harness that in order to move forward. So, you know, it's been, ta- to your point, it's being talked on every podcast, every conference. Companies are adapting to incorporate technology in their day-to-day operations. We're seeing, I don't know any companies that are experimenting with in creating large language models. Um, I think I think we're going to see a real shift in both VR technology and AI where organizations are going to move you know, away from singularly singularly focused tech toys to enterprise wide tools, mm-hmm. and you know, speaking specifically about energy companies, it could provide really new opportunities to improve products and services, automate repetitive tasks, and, and create new and innovative customer experiences. Um, I would like to say that there's, I think, there's still some confusion between generative AI and AI. It doesn't, it doesn't simply generate code or text from scratch. It's analyzing the the. Input of the data we've provided it with, and so it can contextualize our queries. And you know, Gen AI has been around for a while, but Chat GPT took the world by storm last November, and that's what made the greater public sit up and take notice.
0: Well, it, it was. It seemed like it seemed like it was a uh, the general consensus of the public is that, that AI was really kind of like a pipe dream, right? It's something that we've talked about forever. There's been sci-fi films on it for forever. And what ChatGPT did was, it was like a Trojan horse into into the into the the, the greater population because it, it gave them a tool to where the, now they could interface with it in such an easy way that all of a sudden you saw it with the user adoption, just how many people were popping on there, and how it just literally took the world by storm, and how quickly we got used to that, like really really quickly. Oh yeah. And yeah. now it's part of my daily workflow. I have not I keep ChatGPT open at all times, plus the other AI tools that I have. And I use it for almost every single task because I can do it in a fraction of the time. Right.
1: Well, and, and we forget we've been using AI for a while. I mean, yeah. every time you call for a car service, think about that the technology that goes into triangulating the, all the vehicles nearby and plotting the route, tracking it along the way, letting you pay, letting you give input. All those things we just take for granted now because they've been around for some years. But that was that was AI.
0: It's yeah, it's it's not entirely new. Um, but man, the models are getting they so really are. smart. So, so, so smart. There is and
1: you know, but part of the curve to adoption is to ch- is change management and asking the right questions and how do you change processes while educating your workforce. Uh, we, we, you know, we think education is really important, teaching your people how to ask the right questions so so Gen AI can provide useful information.
0: Prompt is key. And right. I think that you can even use the AI to teach you. Prompt engineering uh as well. Things like um so with ChatGPT they just released their uh generative AI for image images with Dolly 3 in in ChatGPT. And the cool thing about that versus something like um I don't know if you're familiar with Mid Journey, but it's the same thing. You you create the images. Right. With Mid Journey, you had to nail your prompt. Exactly. You had to learn over time. But with Dolly and ChatGPT, you just describe what you want, then it creates your prompts, and then gives you the outputs. And so it's cool to see that it's like this inception AI, AI within AI.
1: That's right. So you know, we, I'll I'll make sure to give you. We uh, Deloitte just recently published a generative AI dossier that highlights use cases around six major industries to give just to give people a feeling of the, mm-hmm. of the art of the possible. And so I'm happy to share that with you. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, but it, it's it's um. It shows you some low-hanging fruit, basically. And like, for instance, knowledge retrieval. How many times do you spend reading reports, executive summaries? So you think of the executive of the future. This executive reads, say, 12 news sources a day, 20 reports, three podcasts, needs to edit however many more. And then you can, you can train the, the AI tools to read all of these things and then have it give you a summary. And then, you know, think about taking it to the field process engineers, maintenance to technicians, um, your technician has a list of tasks. Let's say they're about to change a pump and AI is fed with data, so the output can say something like, hey, when you change this pump, your colleagues needed this list of parts or reference those pages of manual or here are the top things they did wrong. So ultimately you're gonna have fewer mistakes, more efficiency and likely mm-hmm. fewer injuries.
0: And I mean that's what that's what we need. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. there's so many there's so many benefits. I could easily spend this entire conversation talking <laughs> about AI. I could I know, too. I, I know you guys do a lot of other work it, yeah. too. Um, let's uh, let's switch gears to what I'm uh, I'm just gonna make the assumption and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure energy transition or energy addition as I call it. Um, is obviously more evolution. Um, whatever, whatever your flavor is, uh, of that. I'm sure that's obviously, you know, we, we know that that's top of mind with a lot of leaders. And so what kind of work are you guys doing around that?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked because our, we have a great research and insights, um, organization that, um, you know, we have a recurring way to, you know, to tap in to executives around the world in industry. And so, um, we we recently just published another paper, kind of following up on, on last year's. And I, I think you know I may have mentioned this a, b- a little bit about that. Uh, last year we came up with you know we did a survey and found that you know one point three five trillion of surplus cash was being generated in that in that moment by um, the, you know the largest oil you know energy companies in the world and. It outlined the pre- t- tremendous performance of the oil and gas industry in 2022, based on you know continued operational efficiency and capital discipline. And, and the great thing is, you know, that hasn't stopped. Those really, you know, that was those were big numbers in free cash flow. Um, and it, so it's a year later. It's fun to be sitting here, Jake, to discuss some of the outcomes since then. That capital availability isn't the stumbling block to the future. So that that's that's important. The global upstream sector is poised to generate an impressive 2.5 to 4.6 trillion in free cash flows from 2023 to 2030, and that's without taking into account whatever is about to happen right now, mm-hmm. as, as a result of the latest um, geopolitical changes. So that that's a lot that can go towards this evolution. Um, and this, so we updated the survey, and the expectations from the industry showed that the future. I really believe the future of energy holds monumental and diverse expectations from the oil and natural gas industries. And you know, even you know, on the flip side of that, you have you know, folks saying negatively, yeah, but that they're still only spending 1.8 per share in global clean energy spending, and that you know, that might be true, but it's growing. And, and then, but you also have to look at what that money's doing in terms of the big projects, the big things like like CCUS and hydrogen hubs. Those couldn't happen without big players. And so that might seem like a small percentage, but it's growing and and it's meaningful. You know, and and on the other, the other hand, uh, oil and gas players would cite a 28% average reduction in scope one and two emissions over the last three years, let alone the last 10 years where, we, you know, the, the U.S. in particular has made meaning in Europe Made really meaningful reductions, uh, and I think that makes people feel confident about achieving a fifty to sixty percent reduction in emissions by by twenty thirty. So, the, going you know into this latest study around uh, convergence and divergence, we called it the key. There are key areas of agreement between oil and gas management and institutional investors. So, this latest research was actually interviewing um, both institutional investors and senior oil and gas execs. And, you know, although we found that their paths, the net zero, might not be completely aligned, there is a shared consensus on the industry's potential to achieve overarching goals. So notably, 75% of the surveyed groups had confidence in the industry's output aptitude, I should say, to harmonize economic and and environmental considerations. Uh, Other areas of agreement were new and improved financing mechanisms to plug this capital gap. Uh, demand for low energy needs to be increased versus, we need robust commercial models to achieve economies of scale. We need to leverage critical mineral and controlling clean supply chains. We haven't mm-hmm. talked about that much that, you know, minerals are an important part of this conversation and that could offer a unique way to play in the renewable space. And then conductive and well-defined policies, you know, remain a cornerstone for accelerating adoption. You know, the IRA is truly, you know, a positive development. On the other hand, we have not seen the same positive developments in permitting and regulatory. Yep. And you need that in order to achieve, to benefit from
0: the, IRA's the IRA. IRA is unique. We've talked extensively about that um, on, on on podcasts, on webinars. That was one of the, the biggest topics because it, it had just, you know, kind of come out prior to FUSE last year and so i think we had like two or three panels that really kind of dove deep into that we had people from doe kind of yeah. like diving into it and so i think that as as i've I've spent more time marinating on the last year and really learning more about it there's a lot of uh positive implications for uh for hydrogen and for renewables and for ccus and really a lot of the new energy stuff um there's also a lot of implications for oil and gas companies on the uh, methane emission side, right? To the point to yeah. where I did a webinar with uh, Chad Frazier, who's, who leads operations for Endeavor on the Permian. And we, we dove deep into that and there's some pending regulations and some, some technologies uh, around like the LIDAR used to detect the emissions that if the industry doesn't, kind of, I don't wanna say like fight back, but give them more guidance into, hey, this regulation is not reasonable. What that means is that potentially stripper well operators, which is about 80% of like (laughs) the operators that we have in in this country uh, will become uneconomical. And it's something that like nobody's talking about. And so it's it's interesting. So there's like two sides of it. And I think that what they were wanting to accomplish with it was extremely noble. However, I think that there's still some things that kind of have to be hashed yep. out uh kind of over time but but i mean these companies are making just massive massive investments into uh retrofitting um you know various equipment on, on well sites to be able to lower the emissions i mean that's their product right They're, they don't want to release it in the atmosphere anyways but um i think a lot of them don't get as much credit as they deserve for how much effort and and, and capital they have poured into that
1: Yeah, i agree I, I agree, and I, I wish there, I wish this industry had been doing a better education all along mm-hmm. of the facts of of what the energy of what the industry does positively, and it's unfortunate. I was just at the uh, World Petroleum Congress in Calgary two weeks ago, and now called WPC Energy, and um, it was fascinating how gl- you know globally. This this industry really does power the world and is part of positive solutions. And yet the, you know, activists and protesters who are there were really misinformed around how vital and and, and the progress that's being made for, you know, I mean, just just not understanding that 96% of everything manufactured in the United States, 96% of everything, the devices, the you know, the clothes, makeup, everything you can think of, toys, yeah. everything you can, medical devices, everything you can think of has petrochemicals in it.
0: Yeah. So here's, well, this is gonna be a side tangent, but this is something I'm very passionate about. And uh, so like you said, we have done a terrible job as an industry um, really telling our story. And so the, the the key to storytelling is to move hearts and minds, right? And as an industry of extremely technical people, lots of engineers, we like to fight back against activists who are probably uninformed um, about the facts with scientific facts and figures, right? However, scientific facts and figures, while they are true, don't necessarily move the hearts and minds of the younger generation, right? And so for decades, and for as long as I can remember, before I ever came to the industry, we as an industry really didn't do ourselves any favors there. We didn't talk about it. When we did, it was with these scientific facts and figures. And then over time, this movement that began to uh, demonize, uh, particularly the oil and gas industry, continued to grow. and continued to grow because they understood the right kinds of tactics and storytelling that was able to mobilize people around like this this movement. And you can't necessarily fault them for... I mean, I grew up in College Station. I was surrounded by oil and gas, but I didn't know anything about it until I came into the industry, right? And so once again, the industry hasn't really done a great job of telling its story and and all the benefits that we do. Um, These people, I think that they want to believe in in something and and that's just unfortunately that the narrative has has kind of gotten away from us and we as an industry just haven't stepped up and really played the same game with with social media like okay let's let's look Precisely. at let's look at any of the large um it could be super majors it could be large independents and let's just go to their social media anybody can go to their social media and if you run the social media I'd love to talk to you um it's it's let's talk about earth day let's talk about the small community impact stuff but nobody's tackled the big thing of like why do we exist and that's led to a divestment of capital into oil and gas that's led to a talent drain and not only do we have a hard time attracting people to this industry, we have a hard time retaining people. There was a massive study that just came out that said that like 65% of the people that were surveyed and like 35,000 people across oil and gas said that they would leave the industry within five years. And that all stems from us not ne- Negative talking, perception. Yeah, negative perception right? because we're not talking well, about especially
1: it. because to your point, on social media, it's so easy to convince people to be against things, to yes. upset people. Versus that's what gets clicks too. Yeah, versus being part of the positive solution. Yeah, and you know, talking talking about um, energy justice and fairness, um, we we don't talk much about the billions of people who still don't have electricity. And going back to WPC conference for a moment, I I was um, honored to lead a panel that was very international of, of around the future of refining. And it was very geographically representative. We had the head of refiners in, for Africa. We had the assistant minister of energy from Saudi Arabia. We had Western Europe represented, and we had Eastern Europe represented of refiners. And it was so interesting, the, the different status of those entities. For instance, the, the gentleman from Africa said, we represent less than 3%. I think he said 2.8% of the world's emissions. Yet, and we forecast that our energy needs, especially in oil and gas, are gonna significantly grow in order for our people to, to for them to have just basic standard of living. And yet, because of the anti-fossil fuel sentiment, especially in Europe, we can't get capital mm-hmm. to, improve our, to improve the refineries we have, to make them, to leapfrog ahead to more efficient, lower carbon ways of producing we can't get the capital to do that because of the um, antagonism toward um, funding any sort of anything related to the fossil fuels.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things, and this goes back to our conversation before we started recording with like, Bitcoin mining, is um, there, there are groups, uh, one company in particular called Gridless. So out of the billions of people that don't have electricity, almost... 90% of them in the world are in Africa, right? And so companies like this are taking their own capital and investing into energy infrastructure in Africa, right? Where a lot of the times this let's just say it generates you know, uh 10 megawatts, well, they only use 1 megawatt and 9 megawatts a day is just wasted, right? And so the bitcoin miners are able to come in and actually buy that from the substation and then provide more prosperity to the local region. It's like extremely game changing because now you're removing having these people in Europe who don't want to invest. You've got wow. these Bitcoin miners who are able to say, we're coming in and completely changing the landscape for this village. Right. There's a cool there's a cool uh that is short cool. film that just came out called Stranded that Alana Media via a good friend of ours just produced. And it's it's really, really moving to just to see how the innovation is is happening there in Africa.
1: That's great to hear. But see, that's a positive story.
0: Such right? a positive story.
1: Such a positive story.
0: So what, okay, so we but, talked but about I haven't
1: seen on Instagram. I've, not that I'm, you know, yeah, spending yeah, I know. as many hours on on social media as others, but
0: what are you seeing in, you know, we have we've, we've talked about uh, you know, energy evolution, we've talked about AI. Outside of that, in terms of like I mean, because you guys you guys have dot and you have like this cool greenhouse and, and I've seen all the technologies and the various partners and stuff that you guys have worked with. What are you seeing in terms of like energy tech? trends?
1: I'd say what's exciting is that technology is moving down the cost curve.
0: Yeah. Supply
1: chain costs have increased significantly. And so, you know, how is that impacting projects being bankable? So technology producers have to up production of electrolyzers and technology of transformation of hydrogen into other molecules. You know, it's a steep challenge and the cover's not declining yet, but we need to secure supply before we can start collaboration. Creating long-term relationships with providers and securing delivery, Um, you know, demand. I I know that's not the technology either, but fixing the demand question is key. That's true. But back to technology. Technology and providers need to align. We need more demonstration projects. Like the more you can get projects started to deploy technology and then perfect The hope is not then is that others will follow and the technology will start to become more sustainable, profitable, and obtainable. Talking about technology around these lower carbon, um, big, big ideas. Um, We need more collaboration. You need need a value chain ecosystem, all the players, raw material, water management, OEM, end users, transport operators to get these projects really moving.
0: Yeah, you know, it's we look at today with with shale in particular, right? We, we've Now we've got cheap, we've got abundant energy, we're blowing and going as an industry. But what did it take to get here? You know, we torched essentially $200 billion in capital over 10 years to really get to this point, right? And I call that the cost of innovation, right? There is a cost that comes along with it. And so, yes, there are a ton of these technologies that currently do not make sense and do not make money. But does that mean that we shouldn't invest in them? And uh, we're seeing massive investment come into it. But like you said, it's it's we're we're hitting breakthroughs right. in certain technologies. We just saw a massive breakthrough with uh, Fervo Energy on geothermal uh, just in the last few months. I think it was like two months ago. Proved their technology works, which is absolutely game changing for the entire industry. I think we're going to continue to see more massive um, uh, breakthroughs on, on the carbon capture side. I think we're seeing it on the hydrogen side. I, I mean, I kind of have this theory. I mean, it's Paying attention to what um, some of the automotive CEOs are saying around uh, how hydrogen hybrids uh, with electric motors, I think, are probably going to be the future of cars rather than just pure play EVs. You know what I mean? But we do need to see significantly more. I think we are. This stat's a little bit old, but I know it was like two years ago, less than 1% of venture capital was going into material science. And it's kind of hard to do anything without, you know, without, uh, you know, carbide and, and cobalt and, oh, and, and yeah. graphene I, and like all I, these things. I
1: mentioned advanced materials before. Yeah. We think that's where that's where chemistry is going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be yeah. a couple probably really big players that are going to grow, I would anticipate are going to grow in that space. So it's something definitely to pay attention to. Yeah.
1: We, you know, a little bit more about tech trends. I mean, I mentioned the technology difficulties we're seeing with the large, um, you know, hydrogen and carbon capture projects. But you know, we're also looking at the landscape of what could dis- disrupt the landscape in the next 18 to 24 months, and how ready is the, the industry to adopt new technology? So you know, we love data and we make a great effort to provide context around the insights and learning from that data. And I mentioned our research and insights team who come from all, all disciplines. Um, one thing I think that's really interesting in the industry value chain is immersive virtual experiences. And you saw a little bit of that, of mm-hmm. that at our innovation center we really help these immersive technologies can help streamline operations and help teams collaborate and learn. Um, I'm always going to be a proponent. Obviously, I've seen people face-to-face, but VR technology is a game changer for energy companies. And when you think about a field engineer or a maintenance technician being able to augment reality and provide access to remote sites, you're reducing the need for, for travel while allowing experts to really inspect and troubleshoot machines easily with potential uh, to develop immersive. So as I mentioned before, I think you like quicker adoption of of those kinds of technologies mm-hmm. and abilities um have all kinds of positive of uh, I think
0: my view of ARVR has changed now that AI has is kind of to the point where it is and so like seeing what uh what meta's doing with like the new Ray-Ban glasses of having essentially like a mini dashboard within the glasses but you can can speak to the ai you know i think about how that would be even more convenient than me consistently querying on on my actual computer being able to prompt it ask it certain questions uh and then still being able to like keep your hands free to like do other things and so i think that that's i think that's probably what i'm most excited about you know whether to be able to you know either either hear uh you know repeat certain things back to me or being able to like see it you know with inside the glasses i think that's that's definitely game changing
1: oh yeah so it's fun, and then you know and then back to ai in exploration there are just research resource rich areas that can be more quickly identified when ai models are front loaded like geolo- you know geophysical and geological data using synthetic seismic data generation they have you know the large companies have already been doing a lot of that that's not new but the the, the generative modeling of hydrocarbon reservoirs I mean, can opt- I mean how that can optimize exploration efforts and increase resource extraction efficiency. Um, well, well, frankly, limiting disturbance to the environment.
0: Mm-hmm. How cool it would really it be possible. if we discover like some other major basin that's like right beneath our nose, like with AI? Completely possible.
1: You know, the, the, if, if I, you know, I cannot believe I have not mentioned the innovation gap. I would say one of the biggest things we have found is that if you, if you do all the math around climate change and the uh, technologies we know today, and we know we know we need huge projects in order to make that leap even taking those into account Jake there's a huge innovation gap and so i think the r and d underway with especially with the clean tech startups is going to there there will be answers in that i mean i know i'm an optimist but i i think all the evidence points to when there when there's this big an innovation gap in the world mm-hmm. the smartest people are rushing to fill that
0: and i think also we're seeing uh, you talked about the uh you know how technology is getting cheaper and cheaper but it's also there's lower barriers to entry for entrepreneurs right to where not that long ago like just kind of getting up and running right to to build a very simple app was wildly expensive with with cloud costs and infrastructure and a bunch of other things and that's consistently dropped and dropped and dropped low code no code ai various things that you can use and I think more and more people are seeing that it's it's not as, as and don't get me wrong, entrepreneurship is still extremely hard, but not as hard as it was from a technical perspective. Right.
1: Well, and and there's this support system, right? Yeah, people like you who who are amplifying and helping optimize, spreading, um, but that didn't exist not that long ago.
0: Yeah, and you you were talking about before we started recording. You know, we went from was it like twenty accelerators and stuff to like over, over 50,
1: fifty today, and, gro- and growing here yeah. in Houston alone.
0: There's, yeah, there's never been like just more resources. Um, I will say, just considering you know a lot of my days are spent talking to EMPs, um, on their side, they do feel like they're constantly inundated with like new technologies and stuff. And so we've been kind of throwing around some ideas of, like how we can help companies kind of like sift through the noise to find the things that are actually going to help right. move well, the well, needle. Well, maybe
1: that's an idea for a startup. A pre-screener of new technologies.
0: Well, I've got something to show you after we get off the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Amy, this has been awesome. Um, I could just sit here and just talk about this all day. I know you're busy. You I could too, but, do.
1: but as you can tell, I love this topic. I love, I love this frontier. I love that Houston is, I think, on the uh, in the midst of a technolo- technological renaissance.
0: It is. It is. I think we're going to see a lot more manufacturing here. As well. I think the cost of that's going to come down, uh, especially with the advances of new technologies and robotics and things like that. But it's exciting to be in Houston. You know, the downside is uh, the humidity and the weather for a few months a year, but the trade off, not tell anybody this, is just the opportunity, you know, and especially in this space. Like you said, there's nothing that replaces face to face interaction. And I think to be able to have those collisions that lead to, you know, building of relationships that lead to just big things happening you can't have that same velocity of collisions really anywhere else for the energy industry. No. And so I'm, I'm thankful for my last, you know, 11 years here <laughs> in Houston. I think that
1: I'm, I'm very thankful for my over 40 years here now. It's, 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 um, I could not have dreamed of a better place to, uh, to, to be on this frontier.
0: It's been awesome. Well, Amy, thanks for, thanks for making the time. Uh, if you guys like the episode, take two seconds, share with all your friends, and we will catch you guys in the next episode.